look at Psalm 127 this morning, the next psalm in the Psalms of Ascent, the one that uh, we landed on here. We're not going to be able to get to all of them, by the way, but the one that we land on here is the very first Psalm of Ascent that has to do with wisdom. So this psalm, as we look at it, is not necessarily for encouragement as the Israelites hiked. It wasn't to lift them up, but it was to give them a little nugget of truth for them to take away. So that's what we're looking for today, a little nugget of truth that we can take with us, that we can apply to our lives. And so if it's a piece of wisdom in Scripture, you could even give a Sunday school answer of where that piece or nugget of wisdom came from and who wrote this psalm. Many agree that it was Solomon, which is also interesting because Solomon was very well known for building something special in the past that his dad couldn't do, but he was commanded to do, and that was to raise up the temple there in Jerusalem. And so we'll get into that, but he writes the very first lines, right, are about building coming from Solomon. He understood what it took to prepare, and he probably built the most beautiful and the best physical representation of heaven that we've ever had here on planet Earth in building the temple to God's specifications. So we find Solomon building, but we also find him describing some things that we can learn from in Psalm 127. Psalm 127 starts the words, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Vain is a word that we don't use a ton, but if we use that word, it really means today just somebody that likes to look at the mirror, look in the mirror at themselves. That's kind of, if, so, if we call somebody vain, it means they like to look at themselves. That's kind of what we mean. But in Scripture, as you read the word vain, it means empty or of no value, which is even ruder if you call somebody vain with that definition. Uh, that's not a very nice thing to say. There was a very large building project in the distant past. Everybody decided we're going to build this large edifice, this large structure, and whatever you believe, the reason why, there's all kinds of interesting theories, but they believe that they could build a structure in their own power that reached to God or could, could communicate to God or could please God in some way. But God was not involved. And as they built the tower there in Babel, right, as we learn in Scripture, God said, you didn't even ask. My stamp of approval is not in this building project. He's like, hey, listen, go scatter about and get to work, right, in something that's better than just what you've come up with here. So we find that some building projects don't have God involved, and you can start to build some things that God is not involved in. Turn to Psalm 127, starting in verse number one. It's only five verses. Starting in verse number one, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Says it once, 
vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain, number two. It is vain, number three, that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. And then something interesting happens. It feels like a a total shift in paradigm. But then it says in verse three, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. What are we building this morning? And then, what are we trying to protect? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you as we look into your word that you have something for us, that we will not come away empty-handed. God, I pray that you'd speak to hearts now as we look into many different passages, that you give us each exactly what we're supposed to take away from them. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, we look at these three vanities, these three empty things the Bible describes. These three vanities are building the house, watching, or the watchman uh, that is trying to find out um, the, the dangers around the gate. And then the third one that the Bible says is vain is waking up early. I don't encourage you to make that your life verse because there's other passages in Scripture that talk about rising early. But this says rising up early and staying up late are vain. However, and then it goes into eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. So let's think about each one of these individually. So building the house, unless you build it with God involved, you labor in vain. So our tendency in our humanity is that either we're supposed to do something or God is supposed to do something, or we're supposed to do something and other people are supposed to do something. If you've ever sat in a meeting at work or even in your own home, when somebody else is doing it and you're telling them to do it, it's called delegation, right? Like, go do this thing. At that point, all you do is go check in to see if they've done it. So we think in our minds, in our human minds, that, okay, there's parts of my life that I'm going to do, and then there's other parts that I'm going to delegate to God. Okay, God, you handle these things, I'll handle these things. And that's not exactly how God designed our lives to work. Our our temptation, right? Somebody was worried that I was going to preach the entire message from a seated seating position, which I won't, but I will come over here and sit. I think there is a temptation, well, there is for me, sometimes to sit down and relax and kind of see, hey, God, and just watch God work and think that I don't play a part in that. That if you tell me my labor is vain, then I don't want to work at it. If you tell me, hey, listen, what you're doing, you're just spinning your tires, well, I want to have more traction in my life, right? So I don't want to do that thing. So as I sit here, and as a kid, I used to think the manly way to sit was like this, like crossing your legs, but it doesn't work so much anymore. So it's kind of like half manly, half feminine. I don't know. So you're just trying to cross your legs. But as you sit here and you want God to work, you, you forget that it's not that you don't labor, 
that if you labor without God being involved, then you won't see the things that God wants you to do in your life happen. So I brought some things here. Who played with blocks growing up? Anybody play with blocks? It's like one of those original toys, right? Just a block of wood. It's a funny thing to ask. Who played with a block of wood as a kid? I played with a block of wood. Uh, I did. I played with blocks of wood, not these ones. But my dad actually made me a set of blocks, cut them in all kinds of different shapes, squares and cylindrical circles and long rectangles. I don't know. The people that are into geometry are like, that's not what that shape's called. But you can start to build something, and you want to see it built a certain way. And as a kid, there's a couple different ways that we built. Some of you in here were the kid that wanted the tallest tower. And you saw that I could turn it sideways here, and I could make a tower instantly taller than many of the people. And then you just kept on stacking them one on top of the other. And you got to a certain point that you realized that was kind of unstable. Who built like that with their blocks? They're like, I want an instantly tall tower. That's what I want. And then some of you were like, well, okay, I'm going to, like you were the analytical kid, the analytical four-year-old. You're like, okay, what's the most stable I can make this? And then you, could, then you were turning it this way and, and trying to discover that. And you were thinking of this as a four-year-old. I don't know why, but you were. With the blocks that my dad made me, I was always playing on the carpet which is kind of like building on sand. It's not where I'm going. Um, but I would play on the carpet. And one, he showed me if I flipped over the box that he had made for the, the blocks the, and then put a block under each one of the corners, it stabilized it, made this perfectly flat, stable position for me to build upon. And then all of a sudden, everything else that I built, didn't matter which way I built. It could have been this way or this way. It didn't matter. Um, what my personality influenced the building. It was always more stable than it would have been. You know where I'm going with that, right? My dad got involved, right? So get your dad involved in what you're building, right? Your heavenly father. Um, he's highly interested in what you're building. He's highly interested in you trusting in him, but also putting forth much effort, trusting in him for the results. It's one of the great paradoxes of Christianity. There's a lot of them, right? You can be the greatest among you is the servant, right? Like the, those kind of things. Um, but he also, one of the paradoxes, like, hey, you can work as hard as you want building something, but unless I'm involved, it means nothing, right? Then he says, you're supposed to watch. You're supposed to be a watchman, but unless I'm involved, the watchman is watching in vain, and they're staying awake in vain. You imagine sitting on a tall wall, looking over um, woods and then cleared land, so, and an enemy might approach. The enemy might or may not have a torch. Like, if they have a torch, they're easier to see. If they don't, you have to watch a little bit closer. However, the passage tells us that it, unless God's involved in that watching, we're going to miss something. We're going to miss an attack that we would have caught if God was involved. It's interesting then how it shifts, because then it shifts into what happens if we don't include God in our building, and we don't include God in our watching. 
and it's we start to worry. We start to be consumed with those two things, and we think that it all relies on us. And then it says, in that moment, it's vain that you rise up early. So if I'm getting up early, because I think my entire day relies on what I'm going to do, even getting up early to get ahead of this thing, if that's why I'm doing it, I've missed it. And if I stay up late trying to finish up those things, or even worse, I'm staying up late because I can't sleep because the anxiety just rolling in my mind because I haven't given this thing to God. If we then stay up late, we're doing it in vain. And then it describes, you know what, we're probably going to survive, but we're going to be eating the bread of anxious toil. We're just working through this anxiety and stress, and we're eating, and then we're getting up, and we're surviving, and we're getting up, and we're uh, living our lives, and, and it's this back and forth up early, up to bed late, um, eating, and you're on this just wheel of anxiety and stress. And God says, this has got to look different for my children. For he gives to his beloved sleep. It's two stanzas of the, the same song or the same poem, depending on if it was read or sung. And then it makes a shift. And the first stanza says to build and watch and have faith. And the second stanza, it then makes this interesting shift, and it says, Behold, children are an heritage from the Lord. It's interesting. It just doesn't seem like it matches up. But God doesn't do things like that. It says, For the fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. So we first see those three vanities, and God says in Matthew 11, starting in verse number 28, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's like, hey, come on, take my yoke upon you, which by the way, doesn't mean you don't work, right? Like if you take a yoke, which is really meant for animals, by the way, you don't put a yoke on humans. Anytime you've put, we've as other humans put yokes on humans, we look back at that and we're heartbroken by that when we look at our history. These, this is something meant for animals that will help us work. But then God says, hey, take my yoke upon you, a yoke that I've already taken on, which I always think about the cross that he carried. That's the picture in my mind. Take my yoke upon you. He says, take up, our, take up your cross and follow me. Then it says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke that the world asks us to carry is much heavier than the yoke that Christ asks us to carry. He says, I want to give you rest. What part do we play in this process? He says to his disciples in Luke 12, 22, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, or what you'll put on. 
For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, nor neither have a storehouse nor barn. Yet God feeds them. Oh, how much more value are you than the birds? We even use, like, the birds, right? Like, that's just a nonchalant idea. God says, you're more important to me than the birds. You wake up in the morning. You should put that on your mirror, right? Like a little... Everyone's into mantras these days. Like, you're more important than the birds. You hear them cheap chirping, right? God has sustained them. They are not worried. They're not hungry. They're taken care of. You hear them chirping right in the morning. You're like, God loves me, and he takes care of me, and he sustains me. And then we find this great heritage. Anybody bow hunt? So we've changed our language. We always want to make our language sound nicer. So we say that we'll take a bow and we'll harvest a deer. Right? That's, it means something, right? But we're harvesting a deer, which I appreciate all of you that harvest deer. It means that I'll hit less of them driving down the road. Anybody ever hit a deer? It seems like we need more harvesters in this room and less hitters because more people in this room have hit a deer than have harvested one. It seems like there's a, but that's not in Scripture, so we won't stay too long on that point. Is my daughter in here somewhere, or did she leave? Can you come up and help me for a moment? My daughter is the best archer in our family, so I'll ask her to be of help. If you can just stand right here, and I did, I brought her bow, and I brought some arrows. I don't know how many you'll need. Hopefully just one. So we'll set these here, and you get set up, and I'll get set up. So if you read or are a student of history or folklore, there's only a few scenarios where apples and arrows go together. So I'll do the hard part and try to balance this on my head. Okay. We, we did practice this. And then Felicity will go ahead and take aim and go ahead... All right, you can stop. <laughs> We're not going to actually do that. Some of you wanted her to take the shot, and others, thank you, you can go sit down, and others were very worried that she was about to take the shot. It says that uh, the warrior is the one that takes up the bow, and if there is somebody in our house that would be the warrior that took up a bow, it would be my daughter there. It says, like, arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. When you were a kid, did you make a bow and arrow? Anybody do that? Took the time. You got to try it at least once. Just go out, you find a stick. 
first one you find was dead, right, on the ground. And you tried to bend it, and it snapped. And then you're like, all right, I got to find a bendy stick, right? This is your kid logic. So then you got to figure out how to cut the stick that's already living. Then you got to figure out, okay, I got to tie a string. The closest thing you have to a, a bowstring at that point is your shoelace. So then you pull your shoelace because you're a kid and you're like, I don't need that, right? So you pull that out and then you realize your shoe is flying off. And you're like, I need something else. My grandfather was a mason by trade, not a Freemason, but a mason by trade. And so I found some plumb line, which was very strong and it's meant to lay brick straight, but really up and down is plumb. And so I got some of that and that was really strong. And I spent all this time making a bow and then I didn't spend a lot of time making an arrow, and I just tried to find a straight stick. And as soon as you shoot it off that string, it just kind of flops through the air. You notice that. And then you remember, you watch this movie where they had like feathers on the back of the arrow, right? And that must do something. So you got to find, and you, then, then you realize you, you should have spent more time making the arrow than the bow. Then you realize you actually got to give time and balance to both. And if you go try to purchase a bow, it's interesting that they're engineered in a way that somebody put some time and money into it, and you got to spend some money. Right? Then you, you're like, I got my bow. And then you go try to buy some arrows. Right? And you're like, oh, wow, those are expensive too. And I can lose those. Right? You're, um, but the Bible describes a child like an arrow, right? We understand the illustration um, that it's something that's going to have to fly true, that it's going to have some attention to detail, um, and that there are some basics that go into instruction and basics that go into attention. And if something's missing, it's very easy to identify what that is. So this great heritage that God gives us is juxtaposed against some other ways that arrows are described in Scripture, but specifically one of my favorites is Proverbs 26, 18, and 19. And if felicity was crazy, where the Bible uses the word madman, she might have just lit those arrows on fire and just started firing them all over the place just because she's crazy. Fortunately, she's not. And, but the this, this scripture says here, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is a man who deceives his neighbor saying, I'm only joking, which is kind of an interesting passage. You ever know that prankster that's always like, ah, I'm just kidding. No, you're a liar. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, it, it's, if, you're, if that's the way you live, you're not benefiting those that are around you, right? The Bible says you're, you're just making a wreck uh, if people are never know if you're, you're messing around with them or not. And then it says that we're to give this attention to children, right? They're a gift from God. Well, what children, right? There's, it's the fifth Sunday of the month, which means it's whatever we call it. Family Sunday, I think. I want to call it Kids Sunday, where they take over. That would be more fun. Uh, but Family Sunday, so none of our uh, first through sixth grade classes are running right now, and all those kids are in here. Way to go. Thanks for coming. 
And so we think, okay, those are the kids. Yeah, but what, do they, what happens if they read this passage? They're like, well, I don't have any kids, right? Like that's, for the, that's what they think in their mind. So uh, what do we do with that? Well, I think immediately, because the context of the passage, we think physical children, but we live outside of that now. We understand that there's also spiritual children. And then you take a step further, and there's also just children of God. And then in the passage, it's described in a way that could allude to they were just all of the children under a single roof, which was multi-generational a lot of times. And so all of a sudden, we're accountable to a lot of the people that are in this room, honestly, as we fall under this one roof, as we're a part of the church, as we're all children of God. And then we find a responsibility and a gift that we are to each other in becoming an heritage from the Lord. And there was somebody, if you have decided to follow Jesus, there was somebody that made that introduction. And there is somebody that probably in your life you've given the introduction to Jesus too. And there's a special camaraderie uh, that you have with that person. Not as your father, but as this multi-generational spiritual thing that we're doing called Christianity uh, keeps on going. There's a special type of bond that we should be looking for. Interesting enough, the passage ends with... Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, which some have made that their life's verse and decided to have lots of kids. However, then it just says something interesting. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. They just skip that second part of the verse. And for me, as I read that, I just think, huh? Like, what does that even mean? And so in my mind, I'm thinking, well, if I'm going to speak with somebody at the gates, it's kind of the common area that they would speak, and uh, maybe it's because my kids are an example of my family. Uh, you get in this space of trying to think through the passage, and if my kids are a mess, then my enemies might have some leverage to say that I'm a bad father, that means I'm a bad leader, that means that I, they win as my enemy. But really... This is a, a proverb of wisdom, and it was very likely uh, that the person that wrote it was dealing with a public dispute, that they were genuinely saying, hey, listen, we got to build, we got to watch. And by the way, our kids and our families and those, those that are close are going to be the ones that bring us this pride here in a great way, we shall not be put to shame because of our kids and our children and our families. And, and the family unit back then was one that you leaned into far more in a greater way than we do today. It meant something to have a family. You depended on them far more. Today, as soon as you turn 18, right, you want to move out. Well, at least go back 10 years. Uh, now, not so much. We're kind of curved, and we understand there's value um, in depending more in our families. And all of a sudden, we're like, hey, listen, this could work a little bit differently. There's some value in leaning into people that love me, and like we might 
look down and say, well, they're still at home, right? Wait a second. I might have been more wise to stay at, at home with the people that loved me more than anybody on this planet and got some more influence from them rather than just moving out when I was 18 and thinking I had this thing figured out. I might have been better off, right, immediately. That might have been a good thing. And as you think through and you apply that, it might just be that the more you lean into your family, the more you depend on, the more you share your struggles with, the more you lean into this thing that God has made, um, the more things start to make sure that you don't face shame with your enemies. Not all of a sudden, church means a little, something a little, little bit different. Well, what do we do? So we want to work with our hands and we want to protect with our hands, but that's really not where we're at today. We don't face a lot of those, those same enemies. But builders, we're to build. What do we build? Well, Scripture describes in multiple different places that we build um, with living stones. And then it also says we build with Scripture, line upon line, precept upon precept. So we look at the materials God has given us, and we are to build with these elements, something happens in our life where it gives us a perspective of building that as I raise my kids, or as I teach, or as I pour into others, as I go to work throughout the week and invest in the lives of others, if I understand that unless God build that, I'm just wasting time. It's just in vain. And unless God is in what I'm trying to do in protecting those that I love, and the people that I have an influence in in my life, if I'm not trying, if, if God's not in protecting them, I can go nuts. It describes here that it's vain to rise up early, okay, and to go to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. I can just continually look at this thing and if I don't believe God's involved in protecting my family and protecting those that I love and protecting each one of us, if God's not involved in this, we're in trouble, right? Then we're chasing every rabbit trail of distraction and trying to shore up every part of our lives. That, and we got to get back to the fact that, first of all, we should look out for ourselves, right? So that we don't all end up in shame. We should be looking out for each other. And we should also have the, the faith and trust that God is involved in this thing. And He is the one that allows us to actually protect when we watch. What do we protect? No one, none of us, well, maybe some of you, but I know it's very unlikely that any of us every night take the night shift and go up a spiral staircase that's made out of stone and go sit on a tower and just watch a field all night looking for the enemy. That would be a lot easier than what we actually do. Because in 1 Peter 5.8, it says, be sober-minded, be serious. This life is not a joke, right? Same thing, firebrands, arrows, and death. I'm just kidding. Listen, this life is not a joke. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You may or may not have been to the Pittsburgh Zoo, but my guess is you've probably been to a zoo. And in whatever zoo you have been in, they probably had lions because they're a popular zoo attraction. 
And it doesn't really matter where you're at in the Pittsburgh Zoo. If the lion roars, you can hear him. You can hear it happen. But not one time have I ever heard that lion roar and like I, I started to get scared. Like it escaped. Like I didn't have any fear that it was going to come eat me. Uh, because it, there's a, an enclosure, right? There's a moat. There's a fence. And they feed them. Right? This isn't a hungry lion. They're, you're, it's living its life, right? It has a heated pad it gets to sleep on. And so the lion's not really encouraged to come eat me. Although, if it was really hungry and it really didn't like me, I have done the calculations. I'm pretty sure it can make its way out if it really wanted to. But there is an enemy that we face in the world, the flesh and the devil. We have the world's idolatry and the world's ideas that we face, and it's tempting to start to think a certain way. And then we have this flesh. We were a spiritual person, but we're wrapped in a flesh that isn't really interested in spiritual things. It's like, I know how to do this. I can build this way. Then the flesh is fighting against us. Then we have this player in, in where we live that, that is the devil and, and has an aspect of, hey, this temptation and looking for those that I want to devour here. And he is looking for something that's weak, and something that's lagging behind, something that is an easy grab, and that's where we should be watching each other's back and not afraid to approach somebody that's about to maybe face some shame, but children are inherited from the Lord. Family is what protects, and we should be watching each other's back so, so we don't face shame. So there is some protection, and so we can build together. We guard our heart and we guard our mind. Solomon builds this most beautiful temple. But the Bible describes that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that we should protect and honor. Physical mirror might reveal the fact that, like, Lord, I'm sorry about your temple right now. But really, it's not talking about the heart. That God dwells in our heart and that we should keep our heart clean, which is far more difficult than just going to the gym. We should gaze into and make sure that we are ready, ready to work and ready to protect. Well, what are we protecting and providing for? Nehemiah 4, if you turn there, Nehemiah 4 describes a certain passage of Scripture in which there's somebody building, right? This is post-Solomon on the timeline. You can think King Saul, King David, King Solomon, then some good but mostly bad kings and in and out of being captured. And, but Nehemiah has this command from God and laid on his heart and wants to see if this is really what he's supposed to do. And he goes and he's building the wall around Jerusalem. And there's some people that don't like it. There are some people that genuinely are his enemy. And so he finds that there's some harassment. There's some prodding. There's some teasing. And not in a kind way. Now, I think it's kind of comical. Right? If you, he's building the wall and somebody's telling him a fox can knock it down. I find that funny, but it wasn't really funny in the context, right? They didn't mean it as just jesting. 
Um, they genuinely didn't like it because after that we see that they're starting to get angry and then they prepare to attack. And then God leads them to do something very interesting that you never see. You've not seen it, I promise you. Is if you look at a construction site, you've never seen somebody laying brick and carrying a sword at the same time. I've never seen it. Drive past, I've seen lots of things. Uh, you know, there's diggers digging, there's cranes going, there's people laying the brick, but never have I ever seen somebody with a sword on their side. In verse number 20, well, there's a lot of verses, but in verse number 20, it says, our God will fight for us. In verse number 21, so we labored at the work. Each one of the builders has a sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. It's interesting, right? Because right now we're together, but as in like 15 minutes, we're about to be spread out. Right? Like, we don't get this type of environment throughout our week. We get to spread out. And maybe you can imagine that sword on your side and, and as you labor. But with, without our God will fight for us. And as you labor, we labor, as the Bible describes, in vain. So what do we do? Why are we protecting why are we providing? And why are we so worried with the outcome? It's a good question to ask ourselves. Why are we so worried in how the things turn out that we're doing? And in our pride, we want to make what we're doing look a certain way so the people that look at it view us a certain way, so we build a certain way, our lives, so that people see it, and then we try to protect our lives in a way so that when people look at us, they see a certain thing, and we do all of this, but without God, it's in vain, and it's very stressful if all we do is look horizontally and we build horizontally, meaning we're only trying to build in a way that exists on this planet and exists in this earth. And if we don't build vertically, meaning as God looks at us and as God is involved, then all that happens is we're worried with the outcome. But when we pass this off to God and said, will you be involved? He will be, by the way. Will you be involved in this? I don't want to do something outside of, of what you want me to do, but would you be involved in this labor that I'm doing? And would you be involved in this watching? And all of a sudden, the worry and the stress of what happens then with your labor and your watching sheds away. And there's a peace and there's a rest and there's a beloved sleep that he gives to his children as we labor together and we watch together. Lord, we love you. We love scripture. We thank you so much uh, that we have a new life, 
that we get to live, one that's outside of the, the pressure uh, that sin brings, uh, the pressure that uh, we have to live outside of um, trying to please somebody other than you. God, I pray that you'd strengthen us this week uh, for your work. God, I pray that you'd strengthen us in our vigilance uh, to help others that are around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here this morning. There's no limit to your impact when God is involved. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing.